Better People podcast. I'm Margaret York, and in today's episode, we're talking to Eloise Lepescure, Chief People Officer at Optimal. So Eloise, let's get started. And um, first of all, welcome to today's podcast, and thanks, thanks for being here with us. Um, I always love to ask our guests to kind of, to in a way, introduce themselves, but do it in a way that um, shares what you think would be most helpful for our listeners. And you know, our listeners are the HR professionals. Um, so what do you think would be most helpful helpful for them to hear about your background? Yeah. So first of all, thanks so much for having me here. I'm really, really excited to talk to you and talk to everyone here today. Um, so how did I get here? Uh, a little bit about me. Um, so right now my title is uh, Chief People Officer um, with Optimal. Um, I came about this role in a pretty circuitous way, um, being very people focused in all of my roles leading up to this. You know, I started out in the very beginning as a in nonprofit public policy and um, but really focused on teams and people and everything I did. I went from that to being more um, in terms of management, looking at uh, leading teams, uh, project managing teams, um, and you know, over time, like each each job, um, kind of uh, incre increasing the scope and portfolio of the teams that I was working with. But every time that I was doing it, whether I was working in operations or marketing um, or change management, each time I was picking up things that were going to be useful for the future, but the whole time being very, very people focused. And over time, I found out that this is actually was my big driver was um, being an advocate for and helping uh, teams be very productive, very efficient, and also very healthy and whole. All right, great. I love that. Um, I love your team focus and um, that you found or that you saw that theme for you show up right and, and from what I understand, it started back in high school for you, right? But this desire to be part of a team, but also to help a team really work at its at its best. So is that what took you into HR then eventually? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so uh, five years ago, I started this company called DS Political, um, which eventually became a division of Optimal. And at DS Political, I was in charge of HR and operations. So I spent a lot of time there. Um, they're a digital advertising firm and work really well with um, the, the people aspect of it, meaning they're, they're, a lot of staff members were fairly new to the organization or fairly new to the workforce in general. So I took a lot of energy and time to really spend on individuals and how do you get the teams to work together and it's not just the process and the technology although that's super helpful within departments so people can be efficient but really taking the time to understand what are their needs like what is what are the drivers that make them comfortable and productive in a work setting um so you know from that um you know you take it along and um when the when the opportunity came up for me to be the chief people officer of optimal um, I'd done a lot of work with the team um, within HR as um, as the COO of, of DS Political that it became all kind of a natural decision to um, take the opportunity when they offered it up. So what does the chief people officer do at Optimal? What's your primary role, would you say? Uh, great question. Uh, I work a lot with leadership and then also leadership at the optimal level, then also each of the divisions to try to make sure that we're having a good sense as to what, um, how the teams are functioning, are staffing levels correct, are staffing, 
our staff being supported properly. And I would say like another big part of it is just the culture. Um, and one of the things that I, uh, I, I actually am right now navigating myself is what is the definition of culture? So some people talk about culture as office culture, doing those fun employee engagement activities. It's also about, you know, having good performance management, good evaluation processes, good goal setting, good OKRs. Those are all really important. And I also think it's about the people culture. You know, how are we engaging with each other? How are we actually communicating? How are we listening to each other? How are we working together so that we have, you know, safe places to work, um, to be our authentic selves, frankly, during the workday? Um, and not only, and we spend so much time at work. I don't want it to be where we kind of take off our hat and we become a different person during the eight-ish hours that we work that we can actually be our true selves at work as well. I think culture is that funny thing that can be very complex and very simple at the same time, you know, and um, it's got like many, many, many layers to it. And again, like I said, it comes down to, you know, how we act, how we treat each other. So it seems, you know, complex and yet pretty simple at the same time. I completely agree. I think when, when we break it down, we talk about things like, um, how do we talk? You know, how do we have difficult conversations? How do we respect each other? How do we trust each other? How do we build trust? I think those are all incredibly important topics. Easy to say, hard to practice. Yeah. And, and I think that's the challenge that we have as HR professionals is to how to help people navigate, coach people well, be a good resource, be a good listening ear, sounding board you know, remove roadblocks where possible, but then also like, you know, the whole teach a person to fish, they can, they can feed their family, you know, give them the tools so that they can actually be self-sufficient and be empowered. So when you think about um, teams and you think about this culture conversation we just had, and then also your passion for teams and having teams work really well together, I know you have a, a third passion really, but I think they're connected. And that is really looking at the generations within the workforce, which I don't know. I've never gone here before, but you almost wonder, like, does each generation kind of form its own team in a way, right? Because there's that commonality among that group. So do you almost look at them as teams? Interesting to think about, but I know there's there are groups of individuals, right, that form these generations. That's how we've come up with the Gen X and Y and Z. Um, but where's that passion come from for you? And what are you doing um, to to help managers, leaders, just individuals in the organization really handle the, the multiple generations we have in the workforce? Really great question. Um, and I would say, I, I don't want to make overgeneralizations. All frankly suffer from, you know, being, you know, minimized to like a quick soundbite. But um, I do feel that, you know, it's very common for, for people to congregate around you know, where they feel more, most comfortable. So if you're newer to an organization, you would congregate around, you know, those who are newly hired. If you've been there for a while, you, you know, so, so on and so forth. <clears throat> um, in terms of the, as I'm not sure if I'm quite answering your question, but I'll, I'll see if I can get there. Um, one of the things that I observed at, when I started at DS Political um, five years ago is it was the first time that I'd had where I was the oldest person in the room. Um, I was used to being a wonderkin who is, you know, the the youngest, the only woman in the room, the only person of color in the room. Um, 
you know, and it, that had its own challenges. You know, if somebody was asking like someone to take notes, they would just turn their heads and look at me. I'm like, I guess I'm, I guess that's my, I guess I'm doing that. Like I'm taking the notes. (laughs) That's by the way, feeds into some of these generational differences is um, understanding. So, so that shift that I experienced, which was um, I was now dealing with people that they were looking to me to be the leader. Obviously, you know, you have a title, but you know, for me to be the leader and then also to understand the differences between their experience and mine, you know, I started my career 20 plus years ago. Um, I'm a Gen Xer. And so when I when I talk about my experience, I have a lot of uh, anecdotes of, you know, you just work hard and you just get things done. And it doesn't matter, you know, what your boundaries are. You know, it doesn't matter that um, if it's five o'clock and your boss gave you something to do, you just hunker down and you did it. Got it done, right. Uh, got it done. And so what I was experiencing is um, not that, and I want to be really clear, um, my experience with the Gen Ys and Gen Zs work hard absolutely um but i would say from my experience a little better boundaries um a little better at setting boundaries and expectations and wanting more clarity and these are all things that were uncomfortable for me given my own experience you know because we all come come to the door uh, come to the table with our own past experiences but i realized that i was being it was it was off-putting um, that I couldn't just treat people the same way that I was treated. And this is okay. one of the things that, you know, <clears throat> we say that we want to pave the way for the people coming behind us. Well, this is one of the ways that we can do it is to not be, and from my perspective, um, and I don't want to use this in a, in a terrible way, but like to not be jealous of people who have it differently than you do, you know, to respect that. And then I would say on the flip, on the flip side of that is, I also don't want to feel like I'm now no longer useful as a Gen Xer. Um, I have a ton of institutional knowledge. My colleagues, you know, my friends and I, we have worked our way up and we've, we've, you know, made mistakes and, but we've done our best and we're trying to make things better for those behind us. And so while I want to continue to pave the way for people to have the world be a different and better place, I also have to recognize that, you know, they may not see the world the same way that I do. Um, and so they may not respect some of the things that I had to go through. And that's actually part of my own process is, okay, you're right. I don't want you to have to have experienced some of the same things that I did and not yeah. be okay with that. Yeah. You know, your self-awareness is really amazing. You know, the, and I love that you admitted that it was a little off-putting, right? That you actually can say that because I do think, um, I think that's natural. I think a lot of people feel that way when something is different than what they're used to. And if we don't raise that self-awareness as to why we're feeling put off, maybe, then we never get to the place where we can then, where you are, right? Where you can understand, well, this is this is where they are because of the lenses that they have on, the experiences that they've had, which is different than what I had. And Difference okay, right? Difference not bad. Difference can be something different can be really good, but I do think it takes that self awareness and um, and and just raising awareness not only of self but of others and of these differences that allow us to get to that place where we can be like, here's where I am and this is okay, and here's where you are and that's okay, and now we can work together. 
I completely agree. I, we did a lot of um, targeted work, frankly, on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we spent a lot of time um, as a collective group, as well as as individuals, really digging into how do we work? What are we looking for? And it's, there's, um, I actually have a mug that says this. I don't know if you can see it, but it says, oh, yeah. and ready to fumble. And this is actually what one of our um, our DEI consultants, Erica Hines, um, had mentioned to us and said, I got her mug. Um, and so it's it's just this really important thing to acknowledge that you're not going to get to perfect. You know, perfect is, is you know, they, you know, we, we've heard it say perfect enemy of, of good. But we want to make sure that every single day we're doing something to make things better. And that does start with our own self-reflection as to our, our own biases or like, what are we coming to the table with? How are we looking at the world with our, what, through what lens? Yeah, just to acknowledge that they're all different. So this leads me to, to another topic that I wanted to talk to you about that I also know you're very passionate with, but I think it's connected. And that self-awareness um, that you have around the generational differences and just differences in general, right, with, with the people on your team, the people that you're responsible for, um, I think that same self-awareness can help when acknowledging that self-care is needed, not only for you, but for others. So talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah, it, that's a it, that absolutely is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. One of the things that I don't think I realized as much um, officially taking on the HR hat is how much emotional labor comes along with the job. Um, anyone who is you know in a position of leadership or management, you're going to have additional pressure and stress, and, and that I get that. And then there's the added layer of being the HR professional. Um, it's it's more than I thought um, it was going to be. Um, and really, what I what I want to talk about is just um, how much we, as the human resources people, we put the human in human resources. So we're the people who. We, we really do care about the work that we do. We're, we gravitate towards this field because of our interest in, you know, helping, you know, people be the best that they can be during their work days. And, but that comes with really thinking through, being super thoughtful, uh, being um, intentional, uh, having the ability to be more self-reflective, um, looking into different kind of leadership models and management models and also the self-care models, thinking about the wellness of our team after we, and then we're the afterthought of like, what are, what do we need? Um, and one of the things that I, I do worry about is burnout within the HR community. Um, you know, who do we talk to? Who do we have to talk to when things get rough? Um, you know, do we have a therapist? Do we have a best friend? Do we have, or do we have a community that we've now built within, within this group and not to just kind of vent and, and, you know, talk about how hard it is, but also to just, you know, truly be that sounding board that we are for our own teams. So I, I think that's, um, it can be, I guess, I don't want to belabor the point, but it can be kind of lonely to be an HR professional. Um, but at the same time, it can be incredibly valuable to know that you've been helpful to, you know, help someone along in their career or, be that person to help them navigate a difficult situation. But with that comes the, all that, that, that effort. 
Absolutely. And I hear it all the time and, and it can be really lonely. Um, so what have you discovered? What ways I should say, have you discovered to really give yourself that self-care? Like what recommendations would you have? Um, still, or, or are you still on the journey? <laughs> I, I think I'm always going to be on the journey to be perfectly honest. Um, but, but yeah, I think I, I, we do a lot, um, to try to, um, support our teams, uh, and I do mean, in this case, I'm actually talking about the HR team. Um, so we do work really hard to make sure that we are cheering ourselves on, um, that we celebrate successes when, um, they, and by the way, some of our successes are like the unsexy ones. You know, we just did these major projects. We consolidated a benefits package across these divisions. We consolidated an employee handbook. We got to a new HRIS and implemented that over the last like three months. No one else is that excited about it, but we are. <laughs> and you're right. Maybe not very sexy. I'm not sure anyone has ever said HRIS systems are sexy. However, if you got that done, that's huge. That's a win. It is a win. And and yes. that's, I think it goes back to like, let's celebrate each other. So it's okay that not everyone understands, like they're not supposed to understand all the back end work that HR does. That's actually part and parcel of like a well-functioning team is that it's seamless. Um, so, and that's one of the things I've noticed too, or, or like experiences, like when things are, and this is with every team, but when things are going really well, you know, people stand by you, but when things go bad, you stand alone and that's when it can be a little bit hard. So, you know, I work really hard, um, to just do a lot of check-ins, you know, how are we doing? How are we feeling as part of our agenda too, is just kind of ask the question, you know, how are things going with you? Um, we, I send, you know, personalized thank you notes. Um, we have shout outs and, um, you know, where we get to do kudos and at our um, biweekly meetings uh, with the, all staff and try to make sure that we have an opportunity to actually, you know, big up each other. Um, and also on a, you know, basic level, I also do advocate for the team within, uh, with leadership because um, it is helpful for me to know and it's helpful for my team to know that I support them. But it's also helpful for leadership to know these are really important things that we're doing. So I understand that we may not be revenue generating um, departments, which, you know, the billable versus non-billable conversation happens at the at the leadership level. And it's a, you know, worthwhile conversation. But, you know, teams like finance, operations, HR uh, tend to be uh, looked at a little bit differently when it comes to resources. And so by being a very good advocate for my teams and the work that we do and how we function to be that really the backbone of the company, um, I think does lead into being a little bit more on their radar um, so that I can actually be supportive to my team. Awesome. So um, how do you communicate? And I know you said you have one-on-ones and everything. And, and so it sounds like you regularly meet with your team, but how do you communicate with your team that you want them to value self-care as well? that you want them to, you know, do what they need to do for them? Yeah, a couple things. One is explicitly stating it. Um, um, also respecting the boundaries. If someone is taking some time off, um, I try not to respond to them if they inadvertently check email and, you know, re, you know and forward an email or, or ask a question. Um, also encouraging people to take the time off. If it's, you know, if we know that we're busy, we're busy and, and you know, thank you for being there. But if we hit that lull, you know, that, that kind of calm before the next, the next storm, 
absolutely, we should all be taking the time for ourselves. Um, also, uh, during the height of COVID, uh, the company at the time uh, had what we called mental health days. And so we would encourage people, this is across the entire team, but we would encourage people to take those, you know, if you just need that break. And that was something that we did uh, push hard to utilize at the HR level as well. So, um, but I do think, I mean, it's also the breaks, right? You know, it's it's standing up and taking a walk after like, a, you know, for your lunch break. Um, it also, one of the things that I would, I would love more of us to do is uh remember before covid that we actually had conference calls um those were those when because what happened during covid is that we all got tied to our video calls and we got tied so, so the first time in my career i got shackled to a desk and so what i'm trying to do is also have more calls with my team so that we can actually be outside walking while we have a, a conversation um and it I think that's helpful is to get people to not be so, um, you know, stuck in the last like three years, which is just, you know, this is our computer and we are now focused on our computer. Yep. This is where we have to stay. Yeah. I love walking meetings and I think that's great. And I had a feeling you were going to say that you did that. And if not, I was going to ask you because I do, I think they can be huge and, you know, walking does some great things for your brain chemistry. So to be able to walk and have a meeting at the same time, I think can be really productive. So let's shift gears just a little bit. Cause I know one of the other things that's on your mind is, um, and this probably is also because of the background that you have, that's quite varied, but, um, you know, mergers and acquisitions are uh, something that occur within your organization. It's a part that, um, or something that you're a part of. And so really for you, it's understanding what's the role that HR plays in m So talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah. So, um, so, as I mentioned before, the company that I was with before um, was acquired about, I believe, almost two years ago now, if my math is right. Um, but, you know, that uh, not about six months ago, another company was acquired. And these companies that are acquired uh, become divisions within Optimal. Um, so HR's role within the M&A process has been very focused on due diligence, which is incredibly important, right? So it's about um, the onboarding process, recruiting, how are you doing things? Do you have things, you know, do you have a process documented? Do you have performance management? Do you do, uh, are your benefits consolidated? You know, all of these things, are you compliant? Uh, and these are all incredibly necessary things for us to get, get and understand the lay of the land so that we, we know what we're dealing with as we acquire a company. So without question, that needs to happen because at the end of the day, it's going to be HR's role to take on the newly acquired firm anyway, and the team members. So we have to know that. My one um, caveat is I really do want people to go deeper uh, when we're talking about M&A. And really, what is, going back to people, what is the culture of the people of the company that you're acquiring or taking a look at? Does it mesh well with um, the existing culture? And if there are mismatches, because they're going to be, how how do you get leadership buy-in to go towards that shared vision to create that one culture? And I think that's a challenge. Um, I think that's something that um, people aspire to with M&A and people say things like they know that it's, it starts and stops with the people. But again, what we say and putting into practice is quite different and difficult to do. Um, 
are you suggesting when you said go deeper, are you saying during the due diligence phase to go deeper? And, and instead of just looking at employee files and seeing what's there actually then, you know, going deeper into what is the culture? How do people feel about working here? Those types of things. I mean, I'd love that. I don't know that I, I do recognize that that's difficult in practice because <clears throat> when you're going through the MA process, you know, off, uh, the due diligence process, oftentimes you're not ready to announce that to the team. Yeah. So that's that's where the the challenge lies. So great if the team or the company has already been doing, for example, like um, employee satisfaction surveys or um, ENPS scores and things like that. Fantastic if that's already happening. If that's not, hopefully, um, you know, the leadership can bubble up honestly some concerns about what the culture fit or mismatches might be so that you can get ahead of them. So I think that's a fair question because, you know, in truth, um, that's probably not the time that you're going to be able to do that deeper dive. But hopefully it's if it's not during the due diligence process, which probably it isn't, hopefully it's like step number one, two, three, once the once the acquisition is finalized. So it's a priority. Once you like you said, once it's been finalized, that this is up there with the other like top priorities. I, I that's what I'd like to see. I think that people default, and this is you know I'm no different. I think people default to what they're comfortable with, and so when sure. you talk about um, building a process or implementing a new technology, you know I, I I like process. You know I'm a I'm you know I, I have a I have a PMP a project management professional certificate. I enjoy, I like to see the efficiency of lots of things and. If you leave me alone, I will look at a problem and I will actually like come up with a process and a policy that's associated with it. And that's helpful. Um, but I think really it goes down to again, like that priority that you're talking about. What is what are the teams saying? What are the teams experiencing? What are our frontline people, boots on the ground? What are they experiencing during this challenge, this change? And people fear what they don't know. People fear fear uncertainty. People fear loss of what they are used to and what they are now experts in. And when you shift that around, and this goes to the whole change management curve of like, you know, from, from the start of it to getting to buy-in and adoption, being cognizant of that change curve and really working it through so that you can actually have people truly understand the value proposition and, you know, that that you're not trying to make things so, so that their lives are difficult. You know, you are actually trying to make things better and more efficient, or, you know, you were worried about resources before, but this now, you know, you have a new team that yes, we're going to have to figure out how we all work together, that whole storming, forming, norming and performing. But, you know, but once we get through this, this kind of churn, we can get there together. So I think there's a lot to be said for being very, cognizant of how important listening is and really listening and then and then acting on what you hear. What I'm hearing from you is that really ideally, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I that your ideal would be that during an MA process, mm -hmm. that huge focus is kept on the people throughout the process. I mean the world according to Eloise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, that sounds good to me as well. So Eloise, what's next for you? What What's the next big project that's on your list? You uh, shared that you've already accomplished a lot, you and your team. So what's the next big thing you're working on? Um, we So we did the consolidation efforts um, of the systems. Say, mm -hmm. 
So post M&A. Um, what we're looking at now is for the rest of this year is really focusing on um, the consolidation of the actual uh, life, employee lifecycle processes. So our onboarding, offboarding, um, our performance management, and our recruiting processes. Those are three of the areas that we're focusing on for this year. And I'm uh, also sorry. One more is is culture, and you know how do we how do we uh, tackle that? Because here's the other thing too is is you know with M and A the way that that optimal is structured. We've got our optimal um, organization at the top, but then our you know we've got the three divisions. Um, so how do we respect the cultures that the legacy cultures of each division? while also forming what is the one optimal. And I think that's you know a challenge, but I think people are on board for what what the future holds. And so, you know, is it um, you know, we we're starting uh to do employee engagement surveys. That'll that'll be one of our first bits um for the first quarter. So I think um kind of going back to what I was saying before, a lot of listening, you know, so putting some functional foundational elements in place like the processes. Um, but also doing a lot of listening so that we can be responsive to the needs of our team so that they can tell us, you know, we're doing things right in this area, but we're really feeling like we, like we weren't heard in this other area. So let's spend more time there. So what does more listening look like? Are you going to do focus groups? Are you going to make a point of having just certain conversations? What does it look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we, I think we're going to start first with the with the engagement survey. That'll be you know a good first hit. From that, I think I'd like to do uh, deeper dives. Um, one of the things that we that whenever I come into a new role, and this is also when it, when my role was announced across the organization, I have I hold what I call listening sessions um, with the leadership of the of the division. So. It's, it's an opportunity for me to actually hear from whoever they identify for me. I don't want to identify. I want them to tell me like, you should talk to so-and-so. Um, so title agnostic, you know, someone could have, could have been there for 10 years and know the lay of the land and, you know, not be, you know, this SVP that, you know, heads up a division or department. So, <clears throat> so listening sessions, we also um, have a, C-suite one-on-ones where we actually, uh, one of the divisions, the political division actually um, meets with uh, a a member of the C-suite. So every single person on staff gets to have uh, time with a member of C-suite every quarter. And so that gives an opportunity for anyone to actually have like, tell me what you, what's on your mind. Tell me what's, what, you know, what you think we're doing well, what you think we could be doing better. Or also like, what are roadblocks you're experiencing in your own in your own career path or in your own work. So there's a lot of opportunities for us to gather information. And then I think one of the things that we um, really were trying hard to be cognizant of or try to really, um, sorry, I'm not coming up with a word here, to try to be intentional about is documenting what we heard. So we want to document what we heard. We want to report out on what we've heard. And then we want to share the progress that we're making on actionable uh, next steps. Because I, I think what can happen is a lot of people get feedback, you know, as a team member, I'm asked, you know, here's a survey. Okay, great. And then nothing. And then you feel like nothing happens. It goes into the void. So um, ensuring that we're, that we hold ourselves accountable as leaders um, to our team members so that they know that A, we heard them and B, we care and C, we're doing something about what we heard. 
I think that's so key. I mean, if you want to get that continued feedback, which I'm sure you do, right? You want this to be something that you do now regularly with the engagement surveys and the the conversations. But if, like you said, if people think that what they're sharing is just going into the void or a void somewhere, they're going to stop putting effort into providing that feedback for you. So, you know, letting them know you've heard them. And I, I think what's, you know, listening to you, and I know so many of our listeners, um, are in the same situation, right? They want the feedback. Sometimes they get really nervous about, well, what if they say things or they want things that we can't give them right now? Um, I think it's just, and I think it's, if you, as long as you provide some type of response, as long as you get back to them, as you said, hey, here's what we heard from you. Here's what we can do. Here's what we can't do right now. And then just be very transparent with them. I think that's okay. I think people really respect that. Would you agree? I absolutely agree with you. And and I think that's such a good point is um, there's a lot of like all feedback is good feedback, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that we can act on everything. And that's one of the things that we work towards um, as a leadership team um, with our consumer division, with our, our direct response division, with our political division. One of the things that we always talk about is how can we be transparent with what we what we've heard, but also transparent with what we can do. Um, and I think people are smart. I mean, people are smart and people get it. You know, there are limitations at a time. It can be something where, you know, this may not work today, but it could be available as for rediscussion, you know, when X, you know, X factor changes. But um, it, I think being being transparent, I, I love that you said that is so critical. Absolutely. So this has been great. I have one question that I would love to ask you before we, we wrap up today. And that is when you look back on your career, what is one thing that you would say that you've changed your mind about? Oh, um, well, uh, this kind of goes back to my, kind of my, my circuitous path, but, um, that, you know, what your, the future holds. Um, I, I really did think, you know, my 20 year old self had it all mapped out um, and it all made sense to me. And what I've learned over the years is I do what's what I call, I don't even know if this is a real thing, but I, I do incremental. I, I, I live in the world of incrementalism now where um, I think it's okay to um, do something to take a lay of the land of, of how you see it today, make a plan, take steps forward. And then after a certain time, you know, three years, five years, take stock again and, you know, check in with yourself. You know, am I, am I feeling healthy? Am I feeling happy? Does this bring me joy? Am I being, am I being fulfilled? Does, you know, is my work life fulfilled? Is my personal life fulfilled? If not, why not? You know, so I, I like the idea of taking stock of myself continually, which before I just thought it was like, this is what you do. Um, so I think being a little bit more kind to, um, to myself, but also, uh, open to change and that change doesn't have to be the enemy change is literally part of life. And it's okay for us to go ahead and roll with the punches when we can and take charge also when we can. So that's great. You literally just took us full circle because what I'm hearing from you is, um, you 
it's more of that self-awareness, right? You check in with yourself. Is this still the right path for me? Am I still heading in the right direction? Am I still doing the things that, like you said, bring me joy, which I think is a wonderful question. And we should be asking ourselves that on a regular basis. And if not adjusting, right, make those adjustments. And that's, um, to your point, change can be a really good thing. So thank you so much for your time today. I loved our conversation around self-care, around team, around culture, and um, the interesting role that HR can play in M&As. So Eloise, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Holly, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. The Better People Podcast is brought to you by MEA. At the Mid-Atlantic Employers Association, we help organizations and their people grow through HR-driven business solutions. Find out more at meainfo.org or in the show notes.